Our scripture reading and sermon text this morning is the eighth and last chapter of the Song of Solomon. This could be located in your pew Bible, page 564. If you haven't been with us in the past, we've been looking intermittently through the book of the Song of Solomon. This collection of love poetry to a man and a, a woman who are married, are exploring all that means in body and soul together. Here in chapter 8, uh, the story comes to a conclusion of sorts, and yet, as we'll see, it really doesn't end. As the final verses are an invitation for the man and the woman to renew their marital bonds and continue forth in the love that has been expressed in this book. So let's read the word of the Lord, uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, read the entire chapter. This is the woman speaking. She says, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leading, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart and a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. The others say, we have a little sister. She has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she's spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she has a door, we'll enclose her with boards of cedar. The woman says, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand, the keepers of the fruit, two hundred. He says, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. She says, yes, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. This indeed is God's holy, inerrant, perfect word. Let us pray that we may be blessed in its hearing. Lord God, indeed, we do pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word this morning, that your will would be made known, that your glories would be revealed, that Christ would be exalted, that we would be strengthened. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. I recently finished a book by a popular historian named Candace Millard, who was writing about the search for the source of the Nile River. The Nile River that flows 4,000 miles north in Africa, emptying into the Mediterranean Sea east of Alexandria for 
literally thousands of years, people did not know the source of the river. The most populated regions of the river, of course, were downstream, near the mouth in Egypt. And you couldn't just get on a boat, for one thing, it was a 4,000-mile trip. Second thing, uh, the river is marked with cataracts. You may uh, risk going down a, a cataract in your boat, but you certainly cannot go up them. And when it's surrounded by cliffs and deserts, it is harder than you think to make it to the source of the Nile River. In fact, it was not until 2006, just 16 years ago, that someone first boated all the way to the source of the Nile River. So plan B, instead of trying that way in the 1800s, in the Victorian era, two English explorers decided, we'll go down to the Indian Ocean and we'll go overland and we'll find our way to the source of the Nile River. May also sound not that complicated. You, you, know, you find your caravan, your elephants, etc., and you make a journey and find the source of the river. Well, this overland trip was nothing like you might imagine. First, you had the bugs. You had, you had bugs that, that were spread disease and infection. One man went deaf because he woke up one morning and had beetle in his ear and couldn't get it out deafened him on this journey. Uh, the rains, it was uh, a dry land, but when the rains came, it immediately turned to mud and torrential downpours that shot through canyons like a geyser uh, seeking to drown those seeking the source of the river. The terrain itself, you know, hot, cold, mountains, jungles, hostile natives, what are you doing in my land? Uh, offered resistance again and again. Disease, as I mentioned. And they eventually, however over all these months, found themselves near the lake. The Nile River flows out of a lake in Central Africa, and they encircled the lake. And they had, they had finally made their way to the source of the Nile River. And they realized it was the wrong lake. <laughs> they had found Lake Tanganyika, which is one of the great lakes of Africa. The problem is, Nile River doesn't flow out of this lake. And they had to make they're out of resources, out of goods. They couldn't, go, they couldn't search any further. They had to make their way back to the Indian Ocean, the eastern coast. It wasn't until later that someone discovered, aha, we should have gone to one lake further north, what's now known as Lake Victoria. Why am I telling you this story? Well, simply put, as I was reading this story and reading this tale, I was also reading Song of Solomon chapter 8, and it struck me that for many of us, finding true love or finding any love at all can sometimes feel like this sort of search. Obstacles in our way. Life itself makes it very difficult to, to find the, the sort of love that is exalted in this book. And a book that can encourage us as it lays this out before us can perhaps also discourage us if we read it and say, I'm not sure that this describes my experience. As we look at Song of Solomon, chapter 8, as, as the author concludes this series of songs, he's, he's in his own way telling us how we can and cannot find the sort of love that is expressed in glowing terms in this book. First thing we'll see in this chapter is that this love cannot be premature. We'll then see that it cannot be found at any price 
And thirdly, we'll see it can only be found rooted in promise. So those are the three PRs this morning. No, no premature love, no, no price for love, only rooted in the promise attached to love. You may have been struck in the first verse of this book when the, 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 the woman, the wife, the bride, wishes that her husband were like her brother. You may think, well, that's kind of strange. You may be married and said, I never thought that about my husband. I wish he were more like my brother. You may wonder why she would say this thing, why it seems odd to you. But of course, the first verse actually tells us. She says, if I found you outside, I would kiss you. You see, in that Middle Eastern culture, you could not show that sort of affection to your spouse in public. Now, if it was a brother, you could. You could go up to your brother in public and embrace him. But your spouse, you could not. She she doesn't say, I wish you were my brother. That would be odd. She says, I wish you were like my brother, that I could embrace you in public. She's not trying to be lurid. She's not trying to be explicit. She does want to be intimate, but you see in verses 2 and 3, when that comes, she wants to go inside. Now, in this verse, verse 1, she may want to break a cultural taboo against embracing in public, but she's not being at all inappropriate. And in the spirit of referring to her brother, you may notice in these first few verses that both of their mothers are also mentioned. She mentions her own mother in verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, she mentions his mother in verse 5. You may wonder this. Why, did, why does she stress uh, the family home? You know, why does she say in verse 2, I want to take you to my mother's house. This isn't like I want you to go meet my mother. No, they're married. Why does she want to take them there to their, enjoy their marital, physical activity? Why, why in verse 5 when the people ask, who is that coming up for the wilderness? Does she go back in time in her mind to... Uh, reminiscing on how she found him under the ancestral tree, as it were, verse 5. Under the apple tree I awakened you. That's where we first embraced. There your mother was in labor. One commentator answers this question this way, that she's highlighting the flow of, of family history. There was love and arousal and sex and children, all those things before them. And now the couple gladly carves their names into the family. Don't you love that image? carves their name into the family tree, looks forward to adding their children's names. They do not stand outside their family genealogies. They're publicly inaugurated in a community celebrated covenant love is bigger than their personal and private love for each other. End quote. I might add that this, this also stresses, doesn't it, the, the innocency of their love, the, the rightness, the rootedness of their love. These are not just two people who, who met as adults and have no relation to their families and those who have come before. No, they are, they are, they are connected. They are tied deeply uh, to the fact that, that marriage is at heart a family event linking generation to generation. And so if this is true for this couple, as it has done throughout the book, the, the Song of Solomon puts offense a wall around this love. As I said first, it says that it cannot be premature. As a woman is reminiscing, you notice in verse 4, she stops to adjure the daughters of Jerusalem. She says, this is wonderful love, but I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. 
She puts them under oath. That love must find its proper place. Now you understand the rootedness of this chapter. She says there, there is a time and a place in this, in, in this, this intergenerational uh, picture that I am drawing for you for love and marriage and sexual intimacy. Now as we've gone through this book, we, we've, this isn't the first time she has done this, is it? She has adjured the daughters of Jerusalem. Adjured the daughters of Jerusalem. And we've seen the reasons, various reasons that she has given. Because sex outside of marriage makes a, a mockery of Christ's commitment to his bride, the people of God. Makes a mockery of his commitment to us as his beloved. Here we see additional reasons that, that sexual relations are to be limited to marriage, don't we? We see the marriage is public and, and generational. In both directions, we have the approval of children, we have the approval of parents, the prospect of children. We see it's community covenant, community celebrated. It's, it's in its proper place. Illicit sex has none of these things. Sex outside the bonds of marriage does not enjoy any of these things. It's shameful. It's not open. It's done in secret. It's without the approval of parents, at least of parents who know and love the Lord and his covenant promises. It produces illegitimate children. It, it, uh, sexual infidelity doesn't build up the, the, the structure and the fabric of society. It tears it apart. It takes what is good and right and makes it dirty and tawdry. We see that, that, that the love between this man and this wife is to be celebrated in a community that, that brings forth such relationships to build up the good of the society and the community. So if you are unmarried this morning, you can apply this directly to yourselves. You can take heed of this morning Remember, every time in the Song of Solomon, we are warned about the dangers of sexual relations outside of marriage. It's always put in the context of not merely saying no to that, but saying yes to the expectation and the hope and the goodness of what is to come when we wait, when we keep ourselves for our future spouse. We look what is in store for us. And this is, this is depicted beautifully for us here in verses 8 and 9. When the others, the, the chorus, those around them, the, the community itself, wants these glories of matrimony protected for this, this little one. They say, we have a little sister. She has no breasts. What are we going to do for her from the day in which she is spoken for? So she's too young. She's, not, she's sexually immature. She's not ready to be married. Yet someone has uh, determined that he wants to marry her. And so they ask, well, what do we do in this situation? And you notice that they, the response is interesting in verse 9 with these pictures. You may wonder, what do you mean if she is a wall or if she is a door? What is the text getting at here? We have this immature woman that someone wants to marry. The text says, well, she is a wall, which is probably code word for pure. She's been protected. She's a virgin. We, we glorify her. We honor her. We bless her. We build on her a battlement of silver. That's, that's a, a sign of honor. Uh, we encourage her. We affirm her. And her willingness and insistence on waiting for marriage. The text says, but if she is a door, that is, perhaps she, is, she has given herself to a man too early. Or maybe she's just, more likely, she's probably just flirtatious. 
you know, her, her, her reputation may be in question. So they say basically what? We'll enclose her with boards of cedar. They're going to make her a cedar chastity belt. Now the application of this text is not go and do likewise. Perhaps today that would be not part of our culture. But, but do you know this? Nevertheless, despite whether she is a door or a, or a wall, the desire is, to, is the same, is to honor her, is to protect her. It's to bring her to this marriage where she can one day marry that man. And, and they can, that couple can take their place in the long line of covenant marriages in this community that have shown forth the goodness of marriage and the goodness of sex inside the bonds of marriage. And the woman refer, uh, replies in verse 10 with affirmation. She says, yep, yeah, that's exactly right. She says, I was a wall. My breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. She, her own experience attests to the goodness of what the community seeks to do on behalf of this younger sister. Now, don't you love the picture that she says, in his eyes, I was one who finds peace. I was a, a bringer of peace. Uh, a, an establishment of shalom, of wholeness, of rightness. In, in Hebrew, this word gives a picture of everything in its proper place, of, of, of a well-oiled machine, everything functioning properly in society, uh, with peace and righteousness and justice and right standing before others. There's actually a play on word here, play on words here in the Hebrew. Because she, as was one who brings shalom, she contrasts that with Shlomo, or, or Solomon in Hebrew. And we're supposed to see the contrast between her situation and Solomon. And that brings us to the second point. If love cannot be found prematurely, neither can it be bought at any price. And that's why Solomon makes his appearance here for the second time in our book, in chapter 8. Remember in, in chapter 3, verse 6, he was one coming up from the wilderness and all his splendor and all his regalia and all his riches. And the married couple said, we don't need that. We need each other. He was a negative contrast, if you will. But now in chapter 8, it's the couple who's coming up from the wilderness in verse 5. And again, Solomon provides a, a negative contrast. In these verses, uh, is narrated at the beginning in verse 11 that Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman, Haman, he let out the vineyard to keepers. Now, what's going on in these verses? Well, the first thing to help you understand the verses is to realize that his vineyard is not a literal vineyard. <laughs> when he's referring to this, just as the woman refers to her body as a vineyard later, so this vineyard seems to be Solomon's harem. And we know elsewhere in Scripture that Solomon had a harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, Solomon had... Uh, an understanding of marriage that was purely transactional. I'm, I'm going to either, if you're a wife, it's because I, I want to have, uh, you know, a, an economic relationship with your kingdom, so I'm going to come marry a princess of your kingdom, and we'll have this alliance for, for the opportunity of trade and in, enriching ourselves. As a concubine, it's simply because I want to enjoy you physically. It's purely transactional. It has nothing to do with a, with a covenant love that has been uh, glorified in this book. 
That's why we said at the beginning, we think Solomon writes this as an older and chastened man who's looking back at his life and saying, man, I did that all wrong. Here's how I should have done it. And he gives this picture of this man and this woman. So in, in contrast to verse 11, when he has such a vineyard, he has to rent it out. He has to pay people to take care of it. People are supposed to, to bring a thousand pieces of silver, perhaps a hint at the thousand women that he has in his harem. What does the woman say in verse 12? She says, my vineyard, my very own is before me. I misspoke. The vineyard, of course, is her husband, not herself. She says, my husband is all I need. You, O Solomon, you can have your thousand, she says. Keepers of the fruit can have their share of 200. He says, the, the, the transactional, uh, purely physical, nothing to do with the ways of the Lord. Uh, sexual life of Solomon has nothing to do with true marital love. Of course, uh, an echo of what she had said earlier in verse 7, isn't it? What did she say there? That if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, which you think of Solomon was exponentially higher than anyone else in his community, and even he was dissatisfied, wasn't he? He offered, you can't count uh, the cost of his harem, and yet he was totally despised, the text says. He would be utterly despised. Why does she, wonder why she picks that word. Why would you be despised if you offered all the wealth of your house to, to enjoy what we are enjoying in this relationship, she says, with my husband? Well, for one thing, it's absurd. I liken it to trying to buy a new car with the loose change in your sofa. You're not going to ever dig up enough change in your sofa to go buy a new car. Neither could you, could you find enough money to somehow purchase the sort of love that comes not by money, but by, as we'll see, with commitment. So he's despised because it's absurd. It's, he's despised because it's ridiculous. And you can imagine those around them saying, look at him. What a, what a goof. What does this man think he is that now he's going to be satisfied that the 1,000th woman brings something that the first 999 could not? No, of course not. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. It's hurtful to the woman. Imagine coming to her and saying, all right, let me make you an offer. He's not going to say, who do you think I am? It's hurtful to her to even offer such a thing. Or, or if she was one of the 1,000 women, or it, it's not more than hurtful, but it's shameful. Reminds her of the fact that she had relented and let herself be bought. And perhaps you're thinking, well, that's, that's you know, Middle Eastern life 3,000 years ago. What does that have to do with us today? No one is going around and adding women to their, his harem today. Yes, but. Yes, we cannot say that transactional relationships are a thing of the past, can we? You feel like you need fulfillment in your life. You find someone who's willing to offer it to you for one night. Fling. Transactional relationship. You're looking for, you're looking for an older and richer person to marry and hopefully die and inherit. You, what, what did Jackie Onassis say? Marry the first time for love, marry the second time for money. She wasn't living 3,000 years ago. 
transactional relationships continue even today. Uh, when you say someone who, you know, who's, who's got it, got it narrowed it down to anyone who's in med school or law school, you know, I'll give you children, you give me a, a roof over my head and a new Lexus every other year. And yeah, I'm kind of mocking, but you understand that's not actually outside the realm of what happens in our community, those we know, those who can reduce love or think they can to merely a transactional relationship. Being willing to give yourself physically to someone who, who kind of vaguely perhaps promises something somewhere in the future, but that future day never seems to come. That's the sort of, of love that is not love. That is being drawn in sharp contrast in the life of Solomon, contrasted with the life of this man and this woman. The woman's message is clear. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised, and perhaps we could say, and despicable. The sort of love that song of Solomon exalts in cannot be bought that way. But let me be clear, this doesn't mean that God cannot use a situation like that. A marriage that began that way can, can find redemption through Christ. Uh, people get married for all sorts of reasons. And in many cases, not why you get married. It's what happens once you get married and as the years go by that, that truly matter. doesn't mean the, the former sins of your life, whether before marriage or in marriage, doesn't mean they cannot be forgiven. We know that they can because after all what? God did not give merely money for you. God did not merely purchase you with, with silver or with gold. For, for actually, what does, what does the Apostle Peter say in his epistle? He says that you are ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. In contrast to the ways of life inherited by, by the faithful in this chapter, he says, you, speaking to Gentiles, you are not ransomed from the futile ways of your forefathers with silver or with gold, perishable things, he calls them, but with what? With the precious blood of Christ. Christ did not buy you with perishable things like silver or gold. Of course, Peter is being ironic there. Silver or gold were the least perishable things of that era, but he calls them perishable meaningless, fading away to oblivion compared to what? The precious, he calls it, blood of Christ. Silver and gold you can put a price on. Blood of Christ, he says, is so precious that it is beyond those things. He connects that with the word of ransom, a price that is paid to free someone from slavery. In our case, he has paid the price to free us from slavery to sin. The sort of sins we've been warning against in this very chapter. Sin, lack of an inheritance, lack of a future, guilt, shame, all these things have been washed away, Peter says, by the precious blood of Christ. You cannot buy love with silver or gold, neither did Christ buy you with silver and gold. No, he gave up himself for you. If you can only rely upon him, if you only look upon him in faith, you may know that you are those whom he has paid that price for. This is 
our reliance. This is our hope. This is our firm foundation that a price has been paid once and for all. And we have been purchased with a love that is undying, a love that is incorruptible, a love that is to see us through to the end, a love that is based in God's promise to us, sealed by the blood of Christ. And this language of sealing and, and promising brings us to our third and final point this morning. So the love cannot be found prematurely, cannot be found at any price, must be found rooted in promise and commitment and oath and total fidelity one to the other for all of life. Look with me in verse 6, perhaps, oh, surely the most famous verse in the entire song. The woman says to her husband, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. You know what a seal is. Particularly in that day and age, it was a sign of, uh, of promise, of commitment, of, of assurance that this document that was sealed came from the mouth of the king and everything that in it would come true, that you could rely on with the word that was written there. It was a, an official promise sealer, a, a covenanter. You notice that she doesn't say, let me give you a seal. She says, I am the seal. Because when you see me, you see the, the commitment that I have made to you, the assurance, the promise that I am yours forever, and nothing will ever stop that from being the case. Linked forever in the covenant promise, set me as the seal upon your heart, upon your arm. She says, why? Because love is strong as death. Of a surprising line. Notice she doesn't say, I will love you until I die. She, this isn't death until death us do part, which is, which is a good thing to say. No, what she says, my love is as, as strong as death. Just as death always gets, the, gets its man, just as you know that everyone was going to die. She says, you may know just as sure that death is coming that I love you. That I am yours forever. She says, my, my jealousy is as fierce as the grave. This says, the grave will claim each and every one of us one day, unless Christ returns. That sure and utter knowledge that we have that nothing can stop that from happening, save Christ's return. So she says, what? My, my jealousy for you is that sure. Thinking jealousy? I thought that was a bad thing. No, in, 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 in marriage, it's good to be jealous for, for your, your spouse's love and commitment, and, and physical uh, activity. You want to be jealous inside marriage. That is something you do not want to share with any other, just like God is jealous for you, not giving his glory to another. She says, that jealousy, that good and healthy zeal for my spouse is as sure as the grave is going to claim us. A macabre image, perhaps, but one we can understand is we know that death and the grave are coming for each one of us, this is the image that she uses, that my love is as sure as that. Next time uh, you're, I know you all do this, next time you write your spouse or draw your spouse a Valentine's Day card, you know, just draw a cemetery on the, on the card. <laughs> draw, draw a big headstone with, with a name on it and say, honey, let me show you how much I love you. And she'll remember this and say, oh yeah. And you'll put it on the wall. All the neighbors will say, what on earth is that there for? 
Well, that's as sure as I'll be pushing up the daisies one day. I can know that my wife is committed to me. And why is this? Because ultimately, for believers, such love is from God. Isn't that what she says in verse 7? Or really, the, in the verse 6, it's speaking of love, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. She says, love is the very flame of the Lord. That's an undying wick. A burning passion that cannot be extinguished. This is the only time in the entire book that the Lord's name, Yahweh, is used. And how proper that it comes here to exalt for us this sealing love. The love that is herself sealed to her husband. The, the other promise that they have made to one another. It's a reminder that ultimately that does not come from her. It comes from the Lord. This, we've seen this many times throughout our series together in the Song of Solomon, haven't we? We've seen the Father's love for the Son. We've seen the Son's love for us. Now we see our love for each other in that same unbroken stream that comes all the way from its source, not Lake Victoria, but from God himself. Normally, normally water douses fire. If you're playing rock, paper, scissors, but you have you know, water, fire, and the third element. Water would beat fire, but what does she say? No, for seven, many waters cannot quench love. This sort of love cannot be extinguished no matter what, because what is the very flame of the Lord? Floods cannot drown it, she says. This is a sort of love rooted in the promise, one to another, that reflects in a very real way the promise of the Lord to us as his people. That's why we read earlier from Ephesians chapter 5 in our assurance of pardon. So that's what the Lord is teaching us today in the Song of Solomon. As we conclude, we see, as we've seen throughout the book, that there's a time and a place for love. It cannot be found prematurely before the covenant bond of marriage is entered into. It cannot be bought with anything, any price, any gold, any silver. It is rooted in the promise. So as the book ends, verses 13 and 14, because of all that has been come has come before. Because everything that is true that has been said about love in this book, what does he say in verse 13 to his wife? Returning to this, this idyllic, Edenic scene of a garden, she, he says, let me hear your voice. He says, I want to hear you calling to me. She does. In verse 14, she calls him to him. And using imagery that we've seen throughout the book. And it's at this point that the curtain closes or the screen fades to black as the man and wife are together in intimacy once again, enjoying the love that God has given them, which is itself just a picture of the love that he himself has for us. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this little book of the Bible, wedged in here between the longer books of song, of Psalms and Proverbs and Isaiah. But Lord, what, what riches, what depths has it brought us to to understand your love for us? Lord, we know that each one of us today are, are those who have, as we have already done this morning, things to confess to you, including in the realm of our sexuality. 
But we thank you for Christ, who covers all those things, who, who turns doors into walls, who makes us whole once again, washes us with his precious blood. May he be high and exalted as we reflect his love one to another. And so in his name we pray these things. Amen.